All right, we are going to uh, read from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family is in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with, his, with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we are nearing the end of our, uh, our series titled Prepare for Spiritual uh, Battle. And... Um, Soon we will be starting a new series um, in the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, subtitled, Following Jesus on His Terms. Um, as we, we have this message and then one next week um, to round this out, I want to start this particular message with a question. And the question is this. If God created everything, if God owns everything, if, if God is all-powerful, how come God doesn't just give a billion dollars to everyone who signs up to be a Christian? Yes, amen, right? There'd be a lot more Christians. Think how much easier our lives would be. Think of what we could do for the poor and the needy in our city. And, you know, because of all the sin and brokenness and, and evil in the world, and since our ongoing spiritual battle in our world and our life and our heart is so exhausting, I think a billion dollars would really help, don't you? I can't think of a better way to offset the effects of evil. It would be so practical. Maybe we should start praying for that. Well, the Apostle Paul doesn't think so. This is what the Apostle Paul prays for. He says that I pray that you grasp the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. What the Apostle Paul is praying for, he's asking God that you would know the love of Christ in order that the fullness of God all that God is will completely fill your hearts in your messed up world, in the midst of your ongoing relentless spiritual battle. This right here is what you really need, and it is far more valuable, and I'm telling you, far more practical. You know, it's interesting that in the middle of the 20th century or so, Religion, church services, sermons, books, articles, whatever, religion became just a way to make my life work. 
Instead of a, a, a spiritual adventure where, where, you were, where you faced suffering with purpose, is reduced. religion was reduced to a set of principles and rules. Instead of delight, it was reduced to obligation. And instead of transforming your heart and your life, it was reduced to a way to make your life more manageable. Give me tips and tricks on Sunday that I can use on Monday to make my life more manageable. I'm telling you right now, that is not enough. It doesn't even come close. What we need, what we desperately need, is to see the reality of Almighty God. To know him, to know who he is, what he's done, to reflect on his grace and his goodness throughout history, the way that he has sustained you through the most dark days of your life, to see that he is renewing all things. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Now here's the thing, most people do want to experience God. Some have settled for going through the religious motions, others Pursue a spiritual experience wherever it leads. A lot of people want spirituality without a commitment to godly morality. And sadly, a lot of churches will settle for a commitment to morality without spirituality. This passage that we read right here this morning is about true spirituality about experiencing God, experiencing the truth of God, the reality of God, not, not, just, not just knowing that God is love, but experiencing his love in your life right here, right now, especially in the midst of your toughest spiritual battle. You experience one thing to know about God's love, facts about God's love, truth about God's love, that is critical, but... It's another thing to experience that love so that God overwhelms you, so that God controls you, so that the evil in your life and world gets replaced with the presence and the love of God. This passage right here shows us what it looks like when we are possessed by God. When we are possessed by God. Now there are four points I want to highlight about being possessed by God. First of all, this passage tells us, if you're taking notes, there is so much more to it than you think. You haven't even begun to know. Check out what Paul prays for. Two things. Verse 17, he prays that Christ himself may dwell in your hearts forever. And then verse 19 says, he, he prays that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, quick question. Who is Paul praying for? Paul is praying for the church. Paul is praying for you. 
Now, that might be a little confusing because in Romans, Paul says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And in Colossians, he says, you have been given the fullness of Christ. So why in the world Paul, is Paul praying for something we already have? That's a little confusing, right? Well, basically what Paul is saying is that it is one thing to have, like, say, a billion dollars and another thing to draw on it. It's, a, it's one thing to have the riches of Christ and another thing to draw on it. It's one thing to have, you know, Christ in your heart, but another to experience him. It's one thing to have all the fullness of God available to you in Christ, and it's another to drink of that fullness. There is so much more to this than what you have experienced so far. Let me give you a couple of examples. Check out this guy. This guy, Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher and mathematician from the 1600s. Famous. If anyone would be inclined to be an, um, an emotionless, calculating, logician, just the facts, ma'am, no fluff, it would be this guy. He was a true super nerd. He had systems for everything. Everything was in order. One of the greatest intellects in history. And he kept a journal. Let me just read a portion of his journal, what this super intellectual guy wrote. He says this, in the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, the day of St. Clement, about a half past 10 in the evening until a, past, a half past the hour of midnight, two hours, fire, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God of the philosophers and the learned, God of certainty, joy, emotion, sight, God of the world, and God of all outside of God. The world has not known thee, but now I have known thee. And he writes this, joy, 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 Tears of joy. My God, don't leave me. Let me not ever be separated from you. Wow. What happened to this guy? Seems a little emotional to me. <laughs> what happened was he experienced what he already knew. His truth about God and the reality of God was internalized. It became more real to him. Not just a set of facts to be organized. And then Jonathan Edwards, New England pastor, theologian from the 1700s, president of Princeton University. He's not famous for being, people who love Jonathan Edwards don't say, I love Jonathan Edwards because he was such a touchy-feely guy. 
No, they appreciated his intellect, right? His theology. He's recognized by not just Christians, but non-Christians as, as one of the foremost thinkers in American history. Check out his journal. He says this. Once, in 1737, I rode out into the woods for contemplation and prayer. I suddenly had a view which for me was extraordinary. A view of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man. I had a view of his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love of his meek and gentle humanity. This grace that appeared was so calm and sweet. It appeared so great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared indescribably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. This continued as near as I can judge for about an hour. It kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt a fervency of soul to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I have had several other times views very much of the same nature that had similar effects. What happened to him? It was the same thing. It was the same thing. He experienced, he grasped, he came to know the love that surpasses knowing. Now, it's not separate from knowing, but it surpasses knowing. And I want you to know, especially for, for our church that's been really going through some spiritual battles for you as individuals and collectively, this is so important for us as a church to see, especially when we're in the midst of, of our darkest days, there is so much more available to you. When you feel like you are at your weakest, when you are just running on fumes, there is so much more available to you. The evil one is whispering in your ear, saying you can't make it. God is not powerful. He does not love you. It's not worth it. Just give up. God is with you, and he loves you, and he is in control, and he's making himself available to you, even in your darkest days. There's so much more available than you imagined. There's a reality of spiritual experience available to you that you've only just tasted. Now, I don't want these examples to discourage you. I hope none of us think, well, man, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I guess I'm not a Christian. Paul is simply praying for the church, for you, to experience God in this way. Don't settle for just the facts, man. Don't settle for just information. Don't settle for just going through the religious motions. And don't be discouraged. I just want us to want more of God. And so for my, my prayer is, Lord, we know 
so little of this. God, help us to grasp this. God, help our church not to just settle for just knowing about you. Help us to know you. Help us to experience you. Help us to see you and your glory and your love for us. That's the first thing we learn about experiencing God. It's so much more than you think it is. Being possessed by him, there's so much more. You have no idea. This passage, I think, also clears up a lot of confusion about spirituality. So second, don't be confused. Experience God involves knowledge and emotion. There's several things I'm going to list here. The first thing, experience God involves knowledge and emotion. Paul says, for this reason, I kneel. Now, what's the big deal about that? People kneel all the time when they pray, right? So what? But people did not do that then. They stood when they prayed. Kneeling here is a sign of intense emotion. And I think we get that today. I mean, if I fell on my knees right now and burst into tears and prayer in the middle of my sermon, you'd be thinking, well, Pastor Matt finally lost it. Right? But Paul kneels because he is blown away by how much the Father loves his church. This emotion here is coming from an amazing intellect, amazing thinking, and amazing emotion. You cannot separate the two. Experiencing God's love cannot happen without thinking but it goes beyond thinking. It must be internalized, internalized in your heart. It's got to become real to you so that it moves you. Second, experiencing God involves the individual and the church. Paul says in verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And he says, I pray that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp the love of Christ. And then he goes on to say, to him be glory in the church. Now there's so many people in the church and outside of church, Christians, non-Christians, who want individualistic spirituality. God did not wire you up for that. Some people, they might want community but they want community without the commitment. Who needs, who needs messed up church people? Not me. I'll experience God on my own. Thank you very much. Well, listen, that's not going to happen. Not even near to what God has, or what he wants for you. See, here's the truth. The more you are involved with people in a local church, the more you will experience God's love and it will become more real to you through both the good and the bad. You can't separate the individual and the church. And God will use messed up church people or the shortcomings of a church to make his love more real to you, to make you more dependent upon his love. For you depend on him 
more. You cannot separate the individual and the church. Third, experiencing God involves both solitude and service. Paul says in verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So, this means that God is glorified through what Jesus did to accomplish our salvation and by what he's doing right now through us, his church, to advance his kingdom. See, you know what? People, a lot of people think that the answer is, if you want to experience God, that, that you run from the world, right? They think that's the way to grow spiritually, run from the world instead of running into the world with the presence and truth of God, right? The Bible says you can't separate solitude and service. We know Christ's love when we serve each other. We know Christ's love when we serve the poor. We know Christ's love as we work in our day jobs, you know, day in and day out, as we glorify him through our work wherever we work. If you're going to be spiritual, you can't be afraid to get your hands dirty, to mix it up. You can't run and hide. He has placed you in the world to represent him. And let me tell you something. That means your spirituality will get messy. Being on mission and representing Christ in a broken, fallen world will get messy. And if it's not getting messy, you're probably not doing anything. So, now... Third main point, what is the one thing we really need? We've been talking about it. Paul says, verse 18, that you may grasp the love of God. This is the one thing that we need, that you may grasp the love of Christ. The one thing our church needs, the one thing you need, if you're going to face evil in this world, is grasping the love of Christ. This right here is the heart of Paul's prayer. Everything he prays before, everything he prays after hinges on this. It is the heart and the high point of true spirituality. Why? Because when you grasp God's love, what happens? When you grasp God's love, what happens is this. You realize that God's love has already grasped you. This is what happens. Check this out. The word grasp here also has the meaning ambush. For example, 1 Thessalonians said, don't let the darkness or the evil ambush you like a thief. It's the same word. Christ's love ambushes us. And, and if you get ambushed, what happens when, when you get ambushed? Ambush, two things. First, you're surprised, right? You didn't see it coming. Secondly, You're under the control of someone else. You become possessed by whoever ambushes you. In the same way, his love surprises you. And his love controls you. And then when that happens, information becomes real to you. I got to tell you, there is such a huge difference the big difference between knowledge as information and knowledge that is real to you. Now, 
you know this. And let, let me illustrate it in a negative way and then, um, then in a positive way. The negative way that you, many of you have probably experienced. Maybe some of you remember a time where somebody you loved, like your mom or your dad or both, I don't know, maybe somebody you looked up to, maybe a teacher, but let's say one of your parents said something hurtful to you. Maybe you remember one of your parents saying, you disgust me, you make me sick, or when are you going to grow up and be a man, or when are you going to grow up and be a woman, when are you going to straighten things in your life out, right? And you know the day, it doesn't matter how old you are, you could be in your 70s, and that could have happened when you were 10 years old, and you remember the date and the place that they said it. And that information had a way throughout the years of controlling you, doesn't it? I mean, when those words come to your mind, it surprises you as if you were reliving it. Information, that information had become real to you somehow. But, but God, in his word, you come to the Bible, and the Bible says that God, your Father, says to you, because of Jesus, you are mine, and you make me happy, and I love you. I love you so much that I give my son for you. In him, you are more valuable than you could ever imagine and stronger than you ever hoped for. In him, you are perfect. You bring me great joy. That's what your heavenly father says to you. My question is, are you experiencing it? Do you relive those words? Do you meditate on those words? Or is the evil one constantly whispering in your ear, you are a loser? You're not good enough. God does not love you or he wouldn't let this happen to you. And if he is loving, maybe he's not powerful enough. Why would you trust him? Whose words are real to you? Here's how we know you have grasped the love of Christ. When what God says becomes more real to you than the hurtful words of others. When God's love ambushes you and surprises you with joy. When his love controls you. So I'm telling you right here this morning, especially in the midst of your spiritual battle, this is the one thing you need. And so, I don't know, maybe earlier you were thinking, you know what, maybe I, I wouldn't ask for a billion dollars. Other things are more important to me. And it seems like evil is destroying it. Maybe you're in a relationship that's falling apart. Or you're at the end of your rope financially. Or your body's in pain. Or you're filled with anger all the time. Or worse, you're bored and apathetic. We all face this stuff. And we have our own ideas of what we need. But the one thing you really need above all else is to grasp the reality of Christ and his love for you. Because if you have that, you can handle anything. And if you don't have that, you will never really experience joy no matter what else you may have. So the big question then is how, right? How can we grasp it? 
Four practical things here. How can we be ambushed by Christ's love? First, prayer. Not as a legalistic thing, but as a life-giving thing. See, Paul prays for us that we grasp the love of Christ. And so the fact that he's praying for it shows us that it is a gift from God to you, the church. And this gift comes to you not by going after the gift, but by going after the giver. There's a big difference. Let me give you a weird illustration. Women, imagine your man came up to you and said, kiss me. And you said, oh, I'm so glad you love me. And he said, not really. I just like making out, and you happen to be the one who's here. So how about it? How would that go over? Not so well, right? But if he does want you, if he does love you, then the kiss is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's an expression of love. So as a church, we need to go after God, not just the experience. You understand what I'm saying? God himself is our greatest treasure, not what he gives us. Second, we grasp the love of God when we read the Bible, not as a legalistic thing, but as a life-giving thing. The Bible, the scriptures, the greatest story of courage and sacrificial love of all time. Christianity is the only religion based on this great story. All other religions talk about what you must do to overcome evil and pass God's test. Christianity tells us how Jesus has overcome evil and how Jesus passed God's test for you. And he has marked you and he protects you, and he walks with you forever, no matter what, on your best day and on your worst day. It is unconditional grace. You can't earn it, and what that means is you can't lose it. That's grace. So you grasp the love of Christ when you read the great story of God's love for you from Genesis to Revelation, and especially the highlight of the story the cross. That is where we, the church, see the love of Jesus. Third, we grasp the love of Christ through meditation on the cross. Now, when I say meditation, I'm not talking about emptying your mind and becoming one with nothing. Okay? That's kind of popular. But this is about filling our minds with the great story until our hearts are on fire. How? Well, we read a verse like this, and we ask questions. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So you ask, 
How wide is the love of Christ? And then you look to the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It is so wide, it can include anyone who believes in him, no matter what they have done in their life. And how long is the love of Christ? Just look to the cross. It is long enough to span eternity. The Bible says that Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. From eternity past, Jesus has been thinking, I love you so much, Infusion Church, I will die to give you life. And Paul says that nothing in all of the universe will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And how deep is the love of Christ? You look to the cross. It deals with our deepest sin. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why was Jesus forsaken? Why was Jesus abandoned? He was forsaken and abandoned so that you never would be. Your heavenly Father will never leave you nor forsake you. And how high is the love of Christ? Look to the cross. It is so high, it takes sinners like Matt Ortiz to be with him in heaven. Mind-blowing. Jesus prayed before he went on the cross, Father, I want those who believe in me to be where I am and see my glory. And he says to you, I go to prepare a place for you that you may be with me. You grasp the love of Christ by meditating on the cross. And one last thing. This happens in church life. This happens in church life. This is so important for us to get. We won't, Christianity was never meant to be just a Jesus and me kind of a deal. We won't grow without community. The good, bad, and the ugly of community. See, the deal is experiencing the love of Christ is not a do-it-yourself project. It happens, as it says in verse 18, together with all the saints. And verse 15, with his whole family of believers. You can only grasp this love in church life the way it was meant to be experienced. See, Father, Son, we were made in the image of our triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity lived in perfect community of love, delighting in one another, loving one another, rejoicing in one another. Then at one point they said, let's share the joy of our love. Let's create people who can join in the love that we have for one another. Because you were made in the image of a triune God, you were created to experience God's love in church life. And it happens as you gather together and hear the great story preached, as you pray and study and meditate together in our home groups, as you serve each other and the poor together, as you share God's love and see it in your brothers and sisters, as you worship with them with one voice in our singing, as you set aside your own personal preferences for the sake of others. We need each other to get what we really need, grasping the love of Christ. 
So I want to ask you this morning. Will you commit to the church to experience God? Not because everything lines up with your preferences. Not because you have all of your needs met. But because it's how you experience the love of Christ. In community, with the good, bad, and the ugly, God uses it all. Will you commit to the church to experience God? And I don't mean, I'm not saying will you commit to me. I'm not saying will you commit to the staff. I'm not, I'm not saying will you commit to the 501c3 that is Infusion Church Incorporated. I mean our church family. That's what I'm talking about. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Not a religious organization that sells religious goods and services in a style that you like. Branded to reflect who you really are. But we're family. Will you commit to your church family to experience God? Not as a legalistic thing, but as a life-giving thing. Now as we close, let me remind you Paul is praying for something that is already yours. You already have it in Jesus. That you may grasp the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. Paul's praying that you would draw on all of the riches of Christ that are already yours. He prays for you to experience now in church community what you will experience for all eternity, right now, today. One day you will stand in Jesus' presence, face to face, and your heart will finally be 100% full with the fullest experience of the fullness of God's fullness, which is infinite. I mean, this is the high point of the blessing. He's praying that for all eternity, your heart might be filled and filled and filled forever. And this starts today in church community. God will, out of his infinite resources, increasingly pour his love into our sinful hearts until they are one day made perfect when we are with him, when you finally stand face to face with our king who has rescued you through the cross. Now, I don't know all the details, all the steps, or how God's going to connect all the dots on that, the specific way that unfolds. I don't think Paul does either. Right after he prays, he says, now to him. One of my wife's favorite verses. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine according to his power that is in work within us right now. And you know, Paul doesn't know how God's gonna do it but he knows that God can and he will. And so he worships and he says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?